So today on Bobby and Jens, we have one of the most dominant, if not the most dominant, gravel rider, mountain bike rider, just overall butt kicker in the dirt. Keegan Swenson joins us today, Yenzi. How awesome was that talking to Keegan? I know it was. And people, when we talked about how dominant he was this season, listen to our podcast and you will go, oh my God. By that amount of training, of course he's going to be the dominant rider. You will be absolutely blown away by the amount of work he puts into it. I was fascinated. He, he mentioned something that was kind of funny about doing a 35 to 40 hour a week and both you and I kind of like shuddered. We used to do that all the time, but I average, if I'm lucky, 12 hours on the bike per week. But this last week, we were down in Tucson, Arizona for the L Tour of Tucson, and I hit 12 hours on a Wednesday and still had Thursday, Friday, and the big event to go on Saturday. So I did a 20-hour week this last week, and I'm exhausted. Um, do you remember what it was like trying to do those 35- to 40-hour weeks? I mean, I don't know how he does it. Right. Um, I mean, back then we had, you know, massage therapist, osteopaths there after races or out in their training camps. We had somebody cooking for us. Um, he lives at home. He got to do all by himself. So, yeah, I cannot tell you how much respect I have for him for doing all the hard work. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation with Keegan Swenson. All right. Welcome, Keegan Swenson, to Bobby and Jens. Yeah, thanks for having me. Man, I have to say, as always, it's not the easiest getting a hold of guests from time to time, but we've wanted to have you on for, for quite a while. But man, you are just bebopping all over the place, racing your bike everywhere, you know, gravel, uh, mountain bike. Where are you right now? And where are you like in your season? Are you having your off season break right now? Uh, yeah, so we're, I'm back at home uh, in Midway, Utah. Uh, so just kind of finished up a little off-season break, and we're just kind of slowly getting back into the swing of training, you know, trying to get back into the rhythm of things. Uh, then uh, I actually headed down south to our winter winter home, uh, Tucson, Arizona, for the uh, winter season and spring. So, yeah, getting her rolling. So you say your kind of like off-season holiday is gone, and you're slowly getting back into your training, right? Yeah. Um, When is your next or your first race? How much time you actually have to prepare? Like two or three months now? Or what is your next event, actually? Uh, so the last event was uh, Big Sugar Gravel Race, which was back in, uh, like, middle of October. Uh, then, yeah, I took a few weeks off, you know, the holiday in Mexico, went on, whatnot, just hung out. And then, uh, yeah, starting to build now. And the next ra the first race will be still not 100% sure when, uh, but likely early March is kind of the tentative plan. So have, you know, quite a while, but a few months to, you know, proper, proper build. So. Yeah. I love that word build proper build. Good thing. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you go? Uh, how do you choose the races that you do and the disciplines in which they are throughout the season? I mean, do you and your coach just sit down and create a, a phase plan with different priorities during each one, or is it just, you get invited to a race and then, all of a sudden you get invited to another one and you just kind of keep it rolling after that. I mean, there's like a, you know, a bit of a general plan. Like for me, like the lifetime grand prix series over here in North America is kind of the, the bigger series that we do. Uh, so that's like kind of takes up the majority of the season and then we'll just fill in around that. So the first race of that series is the sea otter classic in, uh, April. So kind of a later start, you know, and then after the next big one on that would be Unbound and Leadville. And so those take up a good chunk and then you kind of fill it in as it goes with other events. I like to do like some of the Belgian waffle ride races or, uh, you know, end of the season, I'll do gravel worlds and like to do marathon mountain bike marathon worlds here in the U S next year. So, uh, just kind of fill it in as we go, but, uh, for the most part, it's pretty well set. And then we'll just, you know, if there's a race that's close by or, Uh, want to do we'll just jump in and do it but i try not to race too much you know you guys both race a ton and on the road you race and feel like probably what 70 80 days a year or something um whereas i feel like i'm about a third of that so so um uh, some of these names you were just uh, sharing with us of these races they are far apart right for our european listeners the u.s happens to be the third biggest country in the world 
So how do you yeah. actually organize your traveling? You take planes, you take like a one week trip in a camping car with your girlfriend and the dog and the bikes, or how do I have to imagine you traveling to races? Yeah, it can be a bit tricky sometimes, you know, because we might have a gravel race one weekend and then we'll have a mountain bike race the following weekend somewhere else in the country. So sometimes, you know, like the team will drive the van somewhere with bikes and then we're shipping bikes to the next destination. Uh, normally, you know, we'll fly with a couple. I don't know, it's a bit tricky. Uh, normally, normally we're flying because the races are far away, but in the summer, you know, when we're racing in Colorado, like Leadville and uh, some of these other events, uh, that's quite easy. It's only like a six, seven hour drive from home. So then in that case, then you'll just load up the truck and cruise on out. Um, yeah, for the most part, you know, we're racing in the Midwest or, you know, kind of all over the place. And, you know, like you said, the U S is quite big, so it's, it's not quite as easy to get around as it is in Europe. So you gotta have to have a little, you know, different logistical plans. We also don't have like a huge team, like bus or service course. So we just have a sprinter van that kind of goes to races when it, when it works out and it's you know easy to get to. So it's, kind of trying to juggle all those things, but we do a pretty decent job of it. And we've had quite a few um, gravel and mountain bikers, um, privateers, if you will, on the podcast in the past. Are you? Do you have like a conversion van? Uh, we've had people that are staying on tents, pe- uh, staying in tents, staying on friends' floors, staying in their conversion vans. How, like when you're at these races, are you stay, do you, do you have a conversion van or are you staying sort of basing yourself out of a hotel? Uh, we pretty much always do like Airbnb, uh, just cause it's, you know, it's nice to have the space in the garage and whatever else here and there we'll do hotels. Um, I have like a truck and a camper that I'll use just more like for enjoyment, like between races or, uh, you know, if I want to go to a race early, it's in like the mountains in Colorado, I'll go like camp for a couple of days, but you know, it's, I like to have a house and plenty of space to, to hang out and chill and have the space to have everything. So yeah, for the most part we're in Airbnb, unless there is none, then, you know, then we're in hotels. And something I was always curious about, um, unbound, for example, it's 200 mm-hmm. miles, right? Yeah. Um, how do you train and prepare for it? I did it once and I just went, well, I just bite a bullet and struggle through it but yeah. i didn't want to win you want to win so you got to have a plan to get ready do you train the weekend before for 200 miles to give your body a taste of how much it is or how do you prepare for these monster distances we're like 10 hours out there yeah i mean the month before like i mean i'll do quite a few like eight to 11 hour 12 hour rides sometimes uh just really long days on the bike you know as well as stacking you know like do a couple like 35, 40 hour weeks. So just really big volume. Um, <laughs> we have like, <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's a long race. And that's kind of the only way that I feel you can be like truly prepared for it. You know, if you're racing, you know, you guys, you would race for like six, seven hours at most, right? So the longest your training mm-hmm. rides are about six, seven hours, I'd assume. But I mean, you're racing 10 hours, you at least have to be doing eight to 10 hour rides to be ready for it. Um, I don't necessarily think you have to, but for me, like it, it works and I respond well to that volume. And it's also nice to like get used to just sitting in the saddle for that long and figure out nutrition and all the other small things that go along with riding a bike for that long. So it's, it's a bit of a different ball game racing a bike for 10 hours. To, but, uh, yeah, and you're also, I mean, it's not, you're also going quite hard, you know, it's, it's a pretty hard pace the whole time and there's not, I mean, there is drafting, you know, but it's, definitely less significant than it is on the road you just the rolling speeds aren't as high and you're only I mean, the average speed's only like 21 miles an hour or something uh so it's not super fast you wake up in the morning you have breakfast and then you go to your girlfriend hey um honey i see you for dinner i mean you know 10 or 12 <laughs> yeah. hours a bike ride you're gone for yeah. the entire day right so yeah. wow that is wow that's really impressive so what does she say to that I mean, you know, she's training for unbound as well, but she doesn't do that. She uh, thinks I'm a bit crazy. <laughs> she would never go ride for 10 hours. But uh, for me, you know, a couple, we have some friends down in the desert and there's some really big, cool loops. And you're like, oh, well, we're going to leave at 7 a.m. and hopefully we'll be back before it gets dark. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just ride all day and, uh, yeah, get back hopefully around dinner. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she's used to it. It's just part of the program, so. So Jens's question was more focused around the load of the training. I'm more yeah. curious about how you recover from those events because you, you know you do Leadville this year and you dominated Leadville. 
um, what you had a week in between, and then you went to Steamboat Gravel and, and, and won Steamboat Gravel as well. How, how do you recover from these massive events? What do you focus on during that time off that recovery period? Uh, I mean, it kind of is it kind of depends on the event. I feel like a race like Unbound, it takes a little while to recover from. I feel like it's at least, you know, a week or so of kind of like proper, like chilling, maybe a couple of days off the bike, uh, a couple of easy days. It's like kind of easy to do a bit too much and not fully recover and let that race in it kind of like, you know, kind of lingers for a little bit. You don't feel like you get get fully out of the hole. Um, but then, you know, for me, a race like Leadville or it's altitude, I feel like I recover quite quick. I think because, I mean, I'm well adapted to the altitude and I think the altitude, like it, you can't do as much muscle damage. Like you, you're just not pushing on the pedals as hard, you know, cause you don't have the oxygen to do so. So I feel like I recover pretty well from it. Um, but it's just a matter of, you know, taking a few days easy and listening to your body. And if you, you know, if you have, two easy days and then you have maybe another like bigger day to open the motor back up, but you still don't feel quite ready. You just need to, you know, listen to yourself and listen to your body and be like, oh, we'll give it another day or two before we uh, kick it back over and get it going. So it's just a, I don't know, a matter of, you know, no, I guess learning for me and figuring out what works. And spending that much time on the bike, I mean, you quickly, you talked about it before that Bobby and me, we raced something between three to six hours, more or less. Yeah. Um, you, but you train twice as much, or you ride twice as long. Are you do extra training for your muscles in your neck to be able to keep your head up after 10 or 12 hours and your lower back? Because I remember unbound, man, my lower back was just killing me towards the end. So you do anything to prevent these problems? Yeah, I mean, I do a fair bit of gym work, uh, you know, two or three days a week. Not super long sessions, not super intense, you know, 30, 45 minutes at the most. But I think it's enough to, you know, keep all those little muscles in the neck strong. And also, I think just riding, like riding a lot, like the first few long rides, they kind of hurt. And then after a while, your body just adapts and gets used to it, especially riding like off-road. If you're doing riding on gravel, like... I think that helps to trade on that kind of surface. It kind of, you know, it's rough and it kind of sucks, but if you're going to race on it for 10 hours and it's, you better be riding it. Otherwise it's going to be, you know, as you found it, it's extra hard if you're not used to it. So I think you just kind of adapt the more you ride it and you know, the more your body gets used to getting beat up. So I've, uh, followed you on Instagram and where you're kind of documenting these rides and you go out there with your boys or a, a good kind of little training group and yeah, you get after it. But when you're burning that many calories, you can't bring it all with you. So you're stopping at gas stations no. and just eating, eating whatever you can. Um, tell us a little bit about your fueling strategies when you're out training this long, because like during the race, obviously you can get the fuel that you need from the aid stations right. or from the hand up feed zones. But there was a couple photos there where I was just like, man, you know, you had a Coke or a Snickers bar or a bag of chips or like a pop tart or some food that normally you know, athletes wouldn't eat, but like when you're out there, you, you eat whatever you can, as long as it has sugar in it. Right. But tell, tell us a little yeah. bit about those gas station stops and what you crave when you get there. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like some of these rides, you know, the, the loops are so big and they're so remote that there's not really that many stops. Like there might be one or two stops, you know, on this eight hour loop. So, you know, you have a pack and you have a couple bottles and you, you know, take, as much as you reasonably can, but it's hard to carry enough for that long. So normally I'll carry like a bit of extra like mixed powder. So the gas station, you know, I could just throw in some of my never second powder into the, into the bottle and shake it up with water from the gas station. And then you at least continue with the, the fuel your body is kind of used to it. And, you know, you can grab some, some candy and, you know, whatever stuff you feel like to throw in the tank to keep you going. Cause normally, you know, these rides are riding through lunch. So maybe you find like something that's a little more savory or, uh, I don't know, has a little more to it. So you don't just like, you're not just eating sugar, straight sugar all day long. Cause you, otherwise you kind of get, get a little burnt on it and gets a bit hard to throw enough calories in. Um, especially if you're trying to recover for the next day to do, do another one, you know, you gotta make sure you get enough like fat and other nutrients in your body. So sometimes it's not always the most nutritious food, but you know, you gotta do what you gotta do and that's, that's what there is. And then you try and have a, a proper dinner with, you know, with plenty of like greens and veggies and whatever else to help, uh, you know, compensate for what you've eaten that day. But, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of fun. It's part of the challenge, I guess, sometimes to, you know, plan the route and be like, all right, here's our, here's our stop. And we got to figure out how much we need to get to the next one. So, 
So when we talk about um, your uh, fueling strategy, an event about like let's say 200 miles, how many bottles you have? And do you bring a backpack with extra tools and extra chain, extra tires, uh, chain loop, or you have it all stored on your bike so it wouldn't get in your way? Uh, how does your bike look at the start line and how much does it weigh actually? Uh, for the race, you mean, yeah? Yep, yeah, like for, for race, Ronda. for example, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, Unbound, I mean, as you know, it's like a bit of a unique one. Like the rocks there are super sharp and there's always a ton of mechanicals and a lot of flat tires. So, you know, you try and ride extra durable tires and maybe extra tire pressure to be safe, but you still, you know, I race with, uh, what did I carry? I think I had three tubes uh four co2s and i carried a hand pump um like a chain tool just in case uh break a chain or something and then what else did i have like some tire boots like chunks of like you know tire like in case you slice the tire and you need to put something into the tube doesn't come out um extra batteries the shifting like for the rear derailleur if you happen to like someone hits your battery and knocks it out, I figure it's a, you know, it's like 30 or 40 grams. So it's worth just shoving that in the bike. Uh, and our, the new Santa Cruz bikes this year had like the down tube storage. So you can just shove all the extra mm -hmm. stuff. It's like the bottle cage like pops off and you can fill the down tube with stuff, which is kind of handy. So you're not trying to strap it to your bike or deal with like saddlebags moving around and so on. Uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. And then, you know, in the pits, because there's two feed zones and pits, so you have a spare set of wheels and all the other stuff there. And then for bottles, you know, I carry two bottles on the bike and then a pack as well. And then switch in the first feed zone, get two new bottles and, and a pack. And then the second feed zone, uh, I just ran bottles to the finish because it was only like two and a half hours or so. So I just got two, two big bottles. Um, so everyone kind of has different strategies. It just depends on, you know, whether you want to carry, some guys will carry like five bottles. They'll put like three on the bike and then they'll do like one or two in the pocket or whatever. Uh, and, but most everyone does the pack with bottles. Cause also it's like the more bottles you have, the more risk you have of ejecting one or losing one. And then you're, you're definitely, you're kind of in trouble then. Cause there are like, there's some like water oasis as they, they call them, but you have to stop yourself and fill your bottle and at that point and then the, the group would be gone. So, uh, it's a bit of a balance of carrying enough water, but not, you know, carrying so much that you're carrying an extra few pounds of weight that's unnecessary because, you know, it adds up. <laughs> so, Well, I'd, I'd have to say, judging by your results this year, that um, that stuff that you brought was a waste because you didn't really, you must not have had that many mechanicals if you won as many races as you did. But like, what was the craziest, most bizarre misfortune you've had in, in a race? You know, just booting a tire. I remember... I used to boot a tire with like a dollar bill or a power bar wrapper, but now with the tires being so big, especially the mountain bike tires, I mean, you get a big old slice down the sidewall. I don't think a power bar wrapper is going to hold anymore, no. but like what, what is like the craziest thing that's happened to you? Even if you have to go back a couple of years, cause you've been so dang dominant as of, as of late. Oh, I mean, yeah, you know, a few years ago, like I crashed and, uh, broke my hand and, you know, chips like broke some like teeth and stuff in my face and, you know, raced the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 miles of the mountain bike race, the broken hand. And we ended up catching, ended up catching the guy at the finish because he had taken a wrong turn. And I still like ended up winning the race with like, you know, my face covered in blood and my hand was broken. And I don't know. So that was a pretty, pretty hectic day. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I feel like there's, there's a, yeah, there's various other ones, I guess, but hard to recall, I guess, at this point. Bobby uh, just talked about uh, the results. Um, do you have an explanation for yourself why you're having such a good year? I mean, you won almost all the races, maybe except the World Championships, which is like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty big achievement. Why was the season so perfect for you? And you change anything or just everything did fall in line for you? Uh, I think it's just been a matter of the last, you know, last like five, six years of training. Uh, for me, it's kind of been, you know, every year we just, add more and more and uh you know finally getting to a level that i can like like hold like a good level of fitness throughout the year without having to i mean sure uh, you know there's like gentle peaks and so on but like i feel like i can get to a level where i can hold a high level of fitness relatively all season and i'm just learning like how to race as well how to race confidently and uh you know learning how to protect equipment which is a big part of gravel racing and 
yeah, you mentioned like not many mechanicals, but I feel like that's due to, you know, paying attention to line choice and making sure, I, you know, I always ride kind of like tire, like more tire than I really sh- should ride or more pressure just to, you know, err on the safe side to make sure don't flat or crash. And, uh, so I don't know, I feel like just like slowly learning to check all the boxes and, you know, figure it out over time. So I mean, it's definitely been, you know, it's a long road. I mean, you guys know it's been, been racing for quite a while. So it just takes time to figure it out and learning what works for me, what kind of fueling works and nutrition and training. So it's, I think just a culmination of all those things, like finally coming together to help me achieve like what I've been able to. Well, this is a perfect segue into a question that we probably should have asked a little bit earlier. You know, you're talking about adding load year after year and being able to adapt better and better to that load, but where did it all start? I mean, tell us about, you know, Keegan 10, 12 years ago, like where were you, what discipline were you doing? And, and tell us a little bit about how you got started in the sport in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up racing cross country, uh, here in the States and then, you know, started racing in Europe when I was, you know, I think 17 years old when I went over for my first trip, you know, and spent, yeah, I probably spent eight, 10 years just racing cross country world cups. And yeah, I was, I, mean, I was decent enough. Like, you know, I'd win races over here sometimes and, uh, you know, it was, you know, I had some, you had a couple podiums over there and, you know, it was top five U23 world cups and whatever else. And then, you know, started racing elite and just was decent, but never, I don't know, to, to seem like I couldn't like quite put it together. Then I started racing a bit more marathon stuff and it seemed to like just come a lot more naturally than me. Like, I feel like for me, like I just have a good aerobic motor and I was just better at the longer distances. And it's also, I mean, I also ended up just fell into racing this gravel and marathon stuff. And had I gone back to race more cross country now, I'd probably be better at it because I feel like I am a lot stronger and a smarter bike racer, but I do just enjoy the the stuff I'm doing now. So I don't really have a whole lot of desire to go back and race cross country at this moment. But uh, yeah, I guess that's, you know, where I was. I mean, I spent months and months in Europe just racing World Cups and other races. And then, uh, yeah, we just kind of, fell into the marathon gravel thing over here and slowly, uh, yeah. Now I guess feel like I, sometimes I feel like I'm recognized as more of a gravel racer than I'm a mountain bike racer and which I think is still kind of funny to me, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, so you did the, the mountain bike cycle cross and the gravel. What about mm-hmm. road racing? Did that never attracted you or it was just simply too short for you? Uh, I don't know. I just, you know, I'd race. I always been kind of curious about road racing, but never, I guess I was so busy racing mountain bikes. I just never like thought to give it a try. It was just, for me, it was like hard to imagine racing both of them. And, uh, at the time I, yeah, I don't know. I didn't really know. I just didn't really think about it too much, you know, until I got to be a bit older. And at that point it was like, it was a little bit late, you know, cause a couple of years ago we had, I went to road world championships in Australia and And then you had some interest from some road programs and everyone's like, oh, you're a little bit old and so on. And, you know, uh, so it just didn't really, didn't really come together, but, uh, yeah, still, you know, a little bit curious about the road. I think like it would suit me pretty well. The races are a little bit longer than mountain bike racing and, um, you know, it's not too different than gravel racing. Obviously it's a different discipline, but it's a little bit, it's more similar to that, I guess, than mountain bike racing for sure. But, uh. Yeah, I don't know, never hadn't really ever, I hadn't done anything on the road except for road worlds and then like various events over here, you know. So, but for for our viewers and our listeners, he's just acting like, oh yeah, I just went and did road worlds. Road worlds <laughs> is like what two hundred and sixty five kilometers world championships. This one that you did was down in Australia. You don't, you don't just roll yeah. into this, and you you didn't just participate. You actually finished it. Um, what was it like? going from into a totally different world at one of the, the biggest days of the year on the road and still being able to be there and, and, and finish. I mean, that race was, that race was crazy. I mean, it was just such a wild experience. You know, I think like for me, I've raced in Europe a fair bit on the mountain bike, but it's, it's like, uh, I don't know, to me, it seemed like the start lap of a mountain bike world cup for the entire, you know, six hour event. Uh, I, like I, like you said, I was happy to, I was kind of just happy to finish. Cause I really like, 
didn't really know what I was doing. Like I, you know, I'd race some local road races in the States and just some regional stuff. Uh, but I never raced, I never raced a road bike in Europe. Uh, I'd really never done anything bigger and you know, like the opportunity came I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll go, go give it a crack and see how it goes. You know, and it was, it was wild. I mean, for me, I mean, I guess you guys, I mean, you guys have done it enough to know that like, it's, uh, I mean, the road racing over there is pretty, like pretty savage and cutthroat. You know, it's like, you just have to, for me, the hardest part was just like moving through the bunch, uh, had a really hard time at holy position and felt like, you know, it was just kind of fighting the whole time, uh, which is as it goes, <laughs> but obviously there's, you know, good ways to go about it and the ways that it just waste energy. So I feel like if you put me back in that race again, I'd be like, oh man, I could, you know, could have done so much better had I like learned all these things that I learned in that like six and a half hours of racing. Cause like the effort itself was, you know, it was hard, but it wasn't like physically, it was just felt like it was more of a challenge just to like get, get to where I needed to be. And I was always like a few steps behind where I had to be in the group in order to make, make the selection or to like, you know, before the road would pinch or turn or whatever. And yeah, so it was to kind of, a, and there was obviously there's no radios there either. So I had no, didn't really know, you know, how to, wasn't really being told what to do. It was just trying to figure it out from the kind of basic plan we had going in. But obviously that's, that changes a lot. Then you have the feed zones and trying to get over to get bottles. And sometimes you're like, well, I can, I can miss this feed and maybe I can move up to be able in the right place to go into this next lap. So, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I'll go a couple laps without a bottle and I'll maybe risk getting the better position that I can feed next time. I don't know. I feel like that was, it was a crazy experience. And, you know, doing that and then coming back to racing these gravel races, I was like, God, this is, this is easy now. It's so, so relaxed. <laughs> like there's, you know, <laughs> and then I go to gravel worlds and it was like, uh, road worlds, but just even more crazy. Cause you're all the roads are extremely narrow and it's all the same, the same style of racing, just off-road so it's even sketchier and uh everyone seemed like it was even more aggressive than real worlds so yeah but it was a really cool experience we'll be back after this short break now back to our chat with keegan I guess in and gravel races, you know what you're doing in terms of tactics and positioning. Um, to me, to, to for my easy understanding, do you win the race just by being able to hold 21 miles for 10 hours? Or is there like attacks in the end? And is there crosswind sections or you attack on an uphill or on a technical downhill? How do you win? You just wait until everybody else runs out of fuel and gets dropped off your wheel? Or you actually actively attack like we just talked in the road race, for example. Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems, you know, like five, six years ago, that's how guys were winning unbound. They were just riding their pace and they would just solo away. And it was just like, well, it wasn't really dynamic racing. Um, but now it's gotten, you know, quite competitive. You know, this year we had uh, like Vakoch came over and raced and he'd, you know, he'd, he'd won a couple of big classic races, I guess. Uh, we had some, you know, other really strong racers and the race just gets more dynamic every year. And in the end, it, it does seem like, you know, there's attacks early to create some sort of separation. And, you know, this year, I think there was seven, a group of seven of us. And, you know, you, you rotate, like we just rotated on and on for, you know, so it would seem like five hours. And then, you know, eventually like there becomes those attacks. And so it is a, it's a little bit of a race of attrition. Like there is a certain pace that's ridden and a lot of guys do just fall off. Like you only get to six, like it seems around like six or seven hours is when, you know, everyone, people really start to fall apart. Like whether that's because of nutrition or fitness or whatever, but normally the group, whatever group you have will just slip, people just start to fall off. And then, uh, at that point, then it becomes, starts to become more of a race. Like the last couple of hours, there's more attacks and, um, you know, more becomes more tactical. And if there's crosswinds, obviously, obviously you start to use those, uh, This year, it still came down. I mean, there's a lot of attacks, but nothing really ever stuck. Uh, and it just came to a sprint. But then, it, you know, Steamboat this year, there was big crosswinds, and I was, you know, able to attack in the crosswind and get away with Vakosh and a couple others. So it's really depends on the race, but for the most part, there is some sort of tactics involved unless it's a, you know, a race with big, big climbs that you can just ride your pace and, you know, like Leadville or uh, Crusher and the Tusher here in Utah. That's part of the Lifetime series. Like when there's hour long climbs, you can just, ride what you need to do and the race just explodes and it doesn't there isn't really much it's not just simple racing more or less 
but uh, so yeah, it kind of depends. <laughs> it, it, it's so funny. Like, you know, you, you step into the world championships two years ago and you, you just admitted you didn't really know what was going on. You didn't have radio, somebody telling you what's going on. And then you go over and race with basically Tour de France caliber riders at the gravel worlds and you get fifth. Um, obviously you know, your way around the bunch, you know, your, your, the way to peak, the way to fuel. Um, I'm sorry. I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question. Is there any more road riding in, in your future? Could we see you going for, you know, national road title or maybe Olympics selection in 2024 on the road? Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean, road nationals has been on the radar the last kind of couple seasons. It just, uh, for me, it's a matter of like fitting it into the schedule, like while still being able to be in good shape, you know, cause I don't want to go like, I don't I'm, I'm not going to go race road nationals unless like, I know I'm in like peak form to go win, you know, cause the race always has, you know, yeah, this year, I think, you know, Quinn won and you have, you know, McNulty and, uh, uh, Paulus and there are various other like really good world tour racers that races. So. I mean, if I'm going to go for a chance to win, I have to be in like peak shape. And this year, I think it was like a weekend after unbound. So it just didn't work out to, to be able to go there and be able to perform. Uh, yeah, I would like to go give it another crack. And, you know, the Olympics is a bit tricky. Obviously there's like slow age politics and, you know, there's a, you have to qualify and there's, it's a, I'd be a really hard road to get there, but I mean, I guess it's not totally out of the question. <laughs> so. So um, your ability to do these really long distance uh, races, is that in your family? You're the first athlete in your family or is it in your genetics from mom, dad or grandparents passed on? Uh, I don't know. It's really hard to say. I mean, my mom was like a collegiate swimmer and my dad had always, you know, he raced like kind of road, road bikes and mountain bikes like regionally and whatnot, but was never like never at a professional level. So I guess I'm kind of the first one to to race at like a high level and like do, you know, elite athletics, but, uh, obviously I mean, they're both, they're both still very fit individuals. And I, so I don't know, it's hard to say exactly like where, where it came from, but, uh, yeah, I guess I am you know, the first one to, to take this path, you know, that makes I think sense. Hard work, sacrifice, dedication, and absolute motive, self-motivation are b bigger factors than, than parents and, and genetics. But, uh, Yeah. Genetics you know, still play a big part, though. You know, definitely couldn't do it without them. <laughs> so I can't. I well, say, yeah, no denying we, that. But it's nice yeah. to have the collegiate swimmer as a mom, that's for sure. But um, yeah. <clears throat> so you're 29 years old. Um, yeah. Sepp Kuss is 29 years old, who just won the Tour of Spain this year. He mm -hmm. started mountain biking. You were mountain biking. Did you guys ever cross paths when you were mountain biking? Oh yeah, no, I know Sepp. Very well. Uh, we raced together as juniors, you know, in Colorado. Then we went to Europe together and raced some World Cups. Uh, we were on, like, multiple national championship podiums together. Uh, yeah, did national team team trips. Um, yeah, yeah. so I know, I know Sepp quite well. It's been, like, been pretty cool to see, to follow his, you know, his adventure and his kind of rise to, to be one of the best Grand Tour racers in the world. It's been, uh, been pretty awesome. So that's... So, so we'll I guess see. amongst us three, we agree it was a well-deserved happy end for him at the Tour of Spain, right? Oh, yeah. He actually won it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It was cool to see. I mean, you could, I feel like you, I've been, you know, watching Seth the last, you know, few years, kind of his trajectory. It was cool to see him, like, just was very, he was, like, so stoked and he had that, like, the fire mm. to, to make it happen, you know? So, it was cool that uh, he was able to put it together, Uh so I'm curious uh, how the next the next year will go because I'm sure he's got some bigger ambitions now and maybe a little more motivation and you know with Rajla going to the uh, to Bora uh, he'd go Bora right yeah correct yeah yeah. Uh, yeah so I don't know I'm curious how that'll change and you know if if Sepp will still play lieutenant at all the events or if he'll have more of his own shot at some of them I, I don't know but um, yeah be curious to see but it was very um, cool. I have a question about your, your training. Um, I'm sure you have a coach. I'd love to know his name, but are you a numbers guy when it comes to, to training or are you just more go out there and, and get the, the endurance part of it in and worry about the specifics when they come? 
Uh, yeah, I'm pretty like pretty well number oriented, I guess. I don't like obsess over it, but uh, you know, if my coach tells me to go do an endurance ride and ride, you know, 250 watts or whatever, that's the number I ride, um, and I'm pretty like true to it, and you know, always do do the work that's given or told, and you know, I do pay attention to you know threshold power and weight and all that stuff, but I guess I'm not like a total, total data nerd, <laughs> but I think you have to be, you have to be into it and somewhat obsess over it to be good at this, you know, this t- at this point in time, like everyone is getting so fast and if you just completely ignore data, then you're probably going to be a few steps behind. So yeah, I do, I do have a coach. So. And what's his or her name? Uh, Jim Miller. Oh, of course. We've had him on the podcast yeah. before. Awesome. Yeah, so I think you guys have had him, and you know he's worked with you, you world tour guys and uh, various other mountain bikers. And yeah. so, unlike Zeb Kurs, who is in a big, 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 probably fifty or sixty people team, I don't believe you have that much of a team. So, who are your partners, uh, sponsors, people to help you, and how many bikes do you get per year? How many bikes you bring to a race, like? <laughs> Let us know a little bit about the organization around you and behind you, who's on your side and how it all works together. Yeah. So I have, I mean, I'm on what's called the Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz SRAM hit squad, which is a small, like it's a Santa Cruz owned team. So it's like our the small little factory team. There's three of us, um, Toby Nortonblad, Alexis Garda and myself. And it's, uh, yeah, you mentioned like earlier, you had like privateers and, you know, so on different gravel athletes on here. And I think this team, and in a way it's like, a factory supported and ran team, but we have a little bit of that privateer freedom. Like for example, like I, you have my own helmet sponsor, own shoes, saddle, nutrition, uh, you know, eyewear, various other small things, but like the bikes and the equipment are all taken care of through the team. Uh, so it's kind of a nice, in my mind, my mind, it's like the perfect blend of the privateer and the, uh, team format. Cause I can ride, always whatever I want. Like if I, you know, want to ride this, these shoes or this helmet, whatever I can, I can do that. Uh, and there's a lot more flexibility in there, which is sweet, but then you still have like the support of like professional mechanics and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I have a good relationship with my mechanic, Myron, and he's, you know, he's been, I've worked with him when he was on my previous team as well. So I've been with him like five, six years now. Uh, and then in terms of bikes, you know, I have two gravel bikes I'll bring to every race, uh, a couple of mountain bikes. So if like I go to Cape Epic, you know, I'll bring two identical bikes there with, you know, another, basically another bike worth of spare parts. Uh, and then, you know, a bigger, bigger travel trail bike for just, you know, fun ride, the mountain bike, e-bike. And then, you know, uh, Santa Cruz is owned by Pond, which also owns Cervelo. Uh, so luckily, lucky enough to get like, really get Cervelos and ride those on the road. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, a loose team program but it's it's nice and we have a lot of flexibility we can go to any races we want and kind of build our own build our own little programs and then we do have like team events but uh yeah we kind of do do whatever which is cool and that's kind of why i gravitated towards this this discipline it's nice to have that uh that freedom and you know be able to you know i can live here in the states which is nice which i appreciate like i you know i like taking a few trips to europe but i i like you know like being home so it's it's nice to be based at a at where i want to be and kind of live my life and race my bike without too much, too much structure, I guess. Well, talking about, so, so you're at home in Utah and you also Mm -hmm. are based out of Tucson, uh, Arizona as well. Jens and I just got back from the L tour of Tucson. We had an amazing time. Um, we understand why it seems like Tucson is becoming another cycling Mecca, but having a house there and train there for so many years, what, what do you get out of training in Tucson? Why do you think Tucson is such a great place for athletes to, to train? I mean, for me, it's the number one, it's the weather. Uh, you know, I grew up training full-time here in Utah. I mean, obviously I take some trips down to California or Southern Utah when I was a kid, but you know, you train in the snow and do a bit of skiing as well to stay fit, but, uh, you know, it sucks training in the, in the winter. So uh, it's nice to, nice to be in warm weather. I mean, there like a bad day is, you know, 40, 50 degrees with a little bit of rain for the most part, it's 70 and sunny pretty much all winter long. And then it also starts to be quite warm come, 
like April, May, which I think is really good prep for unbound the rest of the season. Like it's you're training in 90 to 100 degrees, which is, you know, really hard on the body in a way. I think it's kind of like training altitude. It helps, you know, just get you really fit and uh, prepare for unbound and these other races that are in the heat. And then, you know, the culture is quite nice. So you have the shootout group ride. You have some, you know, little local road races. You have great training. Uh, you can basically just, once you get out of town, you can ride, you can do like seven, eight hours uninterrupted with no stoplights, uh, no traffic. There's good gravel riding. Road riding's good. You have Mount Lemon for big climbs. You have uh, a couple other, you have Hopkins and Kit Peak, other couple long, hour-long climbs. And then uh, the gravel riding's great. And the mountain biking is also really good. So I think it's got kind of everything you need to for a pro cyclist. And it's also like the first reason, one of the first reasons I started going there is it's like pretty affordable to be able to find a place to live and, you know, to, to exist. <laughs> and now we, you know, we own a house there, so it's quite easy to, to bounce down and just jump in and start training. So, um, yeah, just kind of fell in love with it. Now for me, it's just as much as, as a home as Utah is, you know, so Hey, Keegan, ask Yenzi how many times he's climbed Mount Lemon. How many times you climbed Mount Lemon, Yens? I believe <laughs> only one time many, many years ago. Not but he year. was there for this event and he didn't climb Mount Lemon. Like that, I was hoping you'd really dial in on that because, man, I have done climbs <laughs> all around the world and that is by far my favorite climb. You start it's in the awesome. Suaro Cactus there yeah. at 3,000 feet. You know, you got those little uh, elevation markers, 4,000, 5,000. You know, mm -hmm. you change those little microclimates so many times. To our listeners and viewers, if you have a chance to get out to Tucson, you have to do Mount Lemon. Unlike Yenzi, this last camp, he didn't go up Mount Lemon with me. So I was kind of bummed about it. <laughs> it is cold up there, though. I really don't. It's fine in the winter. Like, I only go to the top of Lemon just a couple times. And it's not till like late in the season because in the winter, it's like, I mean, you're up at eight, 9,000 feet and it's properly cold and you're like yeah i could just turn around at the six thousand foot mark and just do repeats instead of going up and having to bring all the layers and come down so uh yeah it's it's an awesome climb there's also a dirt road at the backside that comes up yeah. to the top that is also pretty spectacular a little steep and uh more challenging but yeah it's cool so we we see that uh, the mental side of sports becoming bigger or people put more attention to that um, do you work with a mental coach or, um, and what, what would be like mental challenges for you for like being out there for 10 hours training or also racing for 10 hours, how to keep your mind focused and keep yourself sharp? Uh, yeah. So I worked with a sports psychologist a few years back, um, probably for a solid few seasons and, you know, kind of got everything dialed in and found what worked for me. And so now you know, I just kind of do my own thing. I don't, I'm not working with anyone specifically. Uh, that said, I do have, you know, here and there, I'll talk to my coach or, you know, my girlfriend, Sophia or whoever, if there's anything like specific, but for the most part, I've got that pretty well dialed. It's just a matter of, for me, it was just, you know, figuring out the confidence thing and then training. I can just go out and put my music in and kind of jam away for as, as long and, you know, as long as I need to. Uh, I guess I've, you know, I found I just really enjoy riding my bike for these long rides and, like, you know, seeing what I'm capable of and to push myself and, you know, see, you know, how, how far deep you can go before I detonate. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, it's a matter of, I just figured it out myself, figured it out for myself after talking to sports psych for a few years as to what, you know, the combination of things works for me. But, so yeah. what, what do you feel when you're out there testing yourself? Where, where do you feel that you can improve? You know, cause a lot of people always tend to train to their strengths instead of their weaknesses. And I'm not saying that you have any weaknesses because I don't think you do, but like what, what, where can we see Keegan Swenson get even better than you were this year? I mean, for me, I think there's, I mean, there's gains to be made everywhere, you know, but, uh, I still think pushing like harder on the flats is always, it's been, I've been working hard on that the last couple of seasons and, you know, Tucson's a good place for that. So, you know, go out and do threshold efforts or whatever on the flats instead of doing them on Mount Lemon on the climb. And, you know, that's been a big help. And I still think there's a lot to be gained there, you know, because I'll go out and do training rides with Quinn or whatever. And he just kicks my ass when it's uh, like flat kind of rolling terrain. So I'm like, I need to, you know, work on this. So it's, uh, I'm not a 
huge rider. I'm only, let's see, I don't know what it is, like 145 pounds, give or take, depending on what I'm doing. But kind of, so I'm not sure what that is in kilos at the moment. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, not huge. 66. So, you know, yeah, about that. Yeah. So I'm, I guess I'm between 64 and 68 kilos, depending on the, the season. Uh, so, yeah, not, not huge rider, but not, not tiny. So I think there's always, you know, gains to be made on the flats and then, yeah, learn how to, to push harder and to keep up with the big dogs. So now you're still at your best racing age. Um, looking a little further into the future, um, any plans of, you know, get married, having children, settling down somewhere? Or you go, now? Nah, I just want to enjoy all this at least for five more years. I want to give it all my energy. Uh, I'd say that's probably a good time. You know, at least, like you said, I think right now, like we're both, my girlfriend and I are racing full time and fully focused on, on this, on, on bike racing. Um, you know, that's, I guess kids and all that are probably something down the line, but, uh, at the moment we're just, we're both fully focused on our careers and, uh, racing. So, yeah. I find it super interesting that you and your girlfriend or Sophia are, you know, the best of the sport. When I was up there at Steamboat Gravel this year, you know, you won the men's race, she won the women's race, and you guys lived together. Jens's wife is not a cyclist. My wife can't tell what a 39 chain ring to a 52 chain ring to a 54 chain ring is after all these years. So she's not a cyclist. How is it living with your your girlfriend being, you know, basically just as good as you are in the, in the female field. Does it ever, do you just kind of want to detach from cycling every once in a while? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's funny. Sometimes we'll, you know, talk about racing and training or whatever, but you know, a lot of times we try and take, get away from that and like leave. Okay. We're done. We're not going to, we're not going to talk about bike racing anymore, but it is helpful, you know, cause she sees, uh, you know, like, my racing from the outside. And sometimes I get, you know, so sucked into what I'm doing. She's like, Oh, you should do this. Like that's how, that's how I would beat you. If I was racing you, I would, you know, try these oh. tactics or whatever. So it's like, cause sometimes I, I don't think that way. I just worry about like how to win myself. And she's like, Oh, well, here's how I would try and beat you. Cause she sees, you know, how, you know, cause I'm sure all these guys, you know, they're all like trying to figure out how to beat me. So I think for her, it's, she's you know, really helpful. And like, can I give me different tactics? Cause sometimes I'm in a way like, bit of a one trick pony. I just know how to ride hard. And I know what tactics work for me. So it's been helpful to have like a different, a different view on how to win races. Cause for her, I mean, the gravel racing over here, uh, at least the past couple of years has been the women race with the men. So she basically just tries to stay with the fastest men like she, she can without blowing up to try and drop the other women. It's a whole like great weird tactic, tactical thing. So I think she's learned, um, like almost a different set of skills than I would ever have an idea of. And then for me, like I'll help her with the equipment side of things in terms of tires and bike setup. And sometimes like she, you know, she'd be like, Oh, just tell me what tires, what chain ring to run. And I, cause I know like what pressure she should use. And I know like all the details. So I kind of have a, you know, a bit of like relationship that way of how, you know, racing and training works and whatnot. And then we never train together. Uh, Here and there, her coach will give her a workout, like just go sit on Keegan and motor pace for four hours or whatever ride I'm doing. If I have like a hard endurance tempo ride or whatever, she'll just come sit on. Um, but we don't actually really ever go out and ride, you know, together as a couple here and there on recovery days. If it lines up, like we'll go, you know, go cruise and go get a coffee or whatever. But, uh, you know, I think for us, it's, we treat it both kind of as a job and, you know, I do my job, she does her job. And because if you try and ride together as a couple, then someone is sacrificing something either she's pushing too hard or I'm not going hard enough. Or there's like, if she's getting dropped and I have to slow down then you know, creates tension or whatever. So, you know, sometimes we'll roll out and ride through town in Tucson for 10, 15 minutes. And then I go left, she goes right. And we do our workout and maybe she's back in three hours and I'm back in five and, you know, then we have lunch, hang out, whatever. But, uh, yeah, we try and keep it kind of separate. Um, some couples do seem like they train together a lot, which, Kind of seems like it'd be difficult for me, but uh, we found a good way that works and that it's kind of mutually beneficial in terms of results and training. So, yeah, yeah, it works out. It sounds like a really wise approach to keep the relationship fresh and happy. So, well done on that. Yeah, um, try, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, you have to, right? Yeah. Um, so, 
if your training all is done, what do you do? What are you doing to relax, actually? You like the movies, you read books, sit by the fireplace, go fishing, go hiking, or probably not hiking after, you know, eight hours on a bike. So what, what do you do on a relaxing day or relaxing afternoon? Ooh, uh, depends on how, how big the training is, you know, because some days you get back and you're just smoked and we'll hang out, watch some TV, maybe take the dog for a walk, uh, and then, you know, cook some dinner, um, you know, stuff like that. Keep it pretty chill here and there. Maybe like, you know, you know, ride bikes downtown and go, go get dinner or whatever on rest days, go get coffee or take the dog for a short little, little hike somewhere around Tucson or whatever. Um, uh, you know, keep it fairly chill. Then I'm here back in Utah at home. I'll, you know, I have motorcycles and I, so I'll ride those. Um, but, uh, yeah, for the most part, we just keep it pretty, pretty easy. And then, you know, races, she's on, a, on specialized and she has her own, her own team and I have mine. So we, you know, don't really see each other much at races except for you know for god we'll go like go do a little ride and like i said grab a coffee or something but um yeah keep it pretty keep it pretty easy well i gotta say um it's been great talking to you because you know been a fan for a while but didn't really know where you came from what made you tick and and now i feel that at least myself and and our listeners and viewers have a much better idea so keegan thank you so much for coming on bobby and jens today all the best with uh the remaining of your off season, your preparation for next year. And um, please remind Sophia, if she ever wants to come on the podcast, she can respond because we almost had her last year, but then she, she didn't know her training schedule and couldn't come on. It'd be great to talk to her as well. So thanks again yeah, for, for coming on with us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was good to chat with you guys. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Keegan for being our guest. Thanks everyone for listening. Please give us a five-star review and don't forget to share us with your friends. The show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. Remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Keegan enjoys taking on the biggest names in the sport and beating most of them. But what's the best underdog performance you have ever seen? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, threads, and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens.